Hello, this is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. I want to thank you for joining me, and you can reach me at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. And this podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. And folks, this episode is brought to you by FHE Health. It's a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders' needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. So take the first steps to a better life today by visiting FHEHealth.com. And it's also open to the public. It's not just for first responders. That's the Shatterproof Program. But do check out FHE Health at FHEHealth.com if you are uh, interested in attending a treatment center, if you have that need or someone that you know has that need, uh, check it out. Definitely, FHEHealth.com. So folks, today, speaking of treatment uh, centers, I would like to talk to you about my experiences while working for the in the last year uh, during an internship uh, at a treatment facility up in the area in which I live. Many of you know that I'm nearing completion of, a, of another graduate degree in addictions and co-occurring disorders from uh, the Hazel and Betty Ford Graduate School of Addiction Studies. And it's been a great experience. And along with that great experience, I was given the opportunity to go and intern at a treatment center. And what an experience it was, what a learning process it was. And I just wanted to give you guys some of the things that uh, I learned from it and some of the key takeaways and observations that I had. You know, this was a great experience for me because uh, towards the end of my FBI career, uh, somewhere in there, I began working as an EAP peer or Employee Assistance Program peer. And for those of you that aren't familiar with that, what that means is that you have someone who's not formally trained in counseling, but they they are people that with just a background or experience, like like in my case, uh, alcohol and addiction, um, where you've uh, worked on that and you've uh, had some success in that, and you're trying to help other employees get help as well. But this is not on a formal basis. This is not formal counseling. It's it's nothing official. It's just something that you can do to help other employees and hopefully point them in the right direction to help them help themselves. And I did that. Did that for a number of years. And, and it, as you know, I started, uh, uh, I was teaching at the FBI National Academy and developed a course called Leading at Risk Employees, which talked about programs, policies, procedures that you could uh, that agencies needed to have, and the audience target target audience of that class were police executives from across the world, and we talked to them about what they can do to help their employees, whether they had e, whether they if they didn't have EAP programs, how they could develop that, uh, and other programs, um, exe- training those executives on what treatment was, what addiction was, progression of addiction, intervention strategies, and the like to help their employees get well, and so I did that. Did that for quite a while. But what that did was it exposed me to, uh, of course, addiction with the employees. But when you're working at a place like the FBI, you're kind of limited in the number of uh, types of drugs and um, situations that you're facing. And most of the situations I had were alcohol, not exclusively. Some of the cases I had were Oxycontin, you know, people becoming addicted to prescription medications, uh, sometimes even over uh, over-the-counter drugs. Sometimes something illicit, but not very often, okay? Not very often just because of the nature of the workplace and the fact that people carry weapons and have security clearances. So if you got to a certain point, you just weren't employed by the organization. That was beyond my scope of control, but you weren't employed there anymore. What that did for me in the counseling realm was really limited 
my exposure to alcohol, uh, the opiate over uh, prescription drugs and some of the, again, some of the over the counter drugs, but we really didn't experience marijuana, certainly not heroin uh, or any cocaine or any other drug because you just wouldn't be working there. And it was a good experience. I learned a lot from that, but having gone to a treatment center where I'm working with the public, all of that's out the window in the treatment center. You are faced with everything under the sun Name a drug, we saw it. Sometimes all of the drugs all at once, coupled with uh, sometimes some significant mental health issues on top of the taking the drugs. And that was an experience that uh, you just can't get anywhere else. I mean, it's almost like a, a resident or an intern, a medical intern or a medical resident working in an emergency room in a city. And it, just imagine the things that you see as an intern in the city in an emergency room. Everything comes through the door. You are seeing everything that is out there, anything that can happen to a human being. And that was sort of the experience that I had. The treatment center was open to the public and uh, we saw everything. And for me, Learning-wise, that was really, it was a good experience because I had to counsel just about every imaginable scenario you can think of. You're now having to do counseling work with that individual. So it was a real growth period for me. Learned a lot, uh, learned about a lot of different types of people. These, by and large, were not people with security clearances, although we did have a few. But whereas in the FBI, that was everybody I dealt with. It was uh, the vast majority of people that I worked with in the treatment center did not fall into that category. And so that opened my eyes and it expanded my wealth of knowledge and information and abilities from there. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. And the counselors that I worked with were all fantastic people. These are people that dedicate their lives to helping other folks. And uh, trust me, they're not doing it for the money. There is no money in the counseling business. And these people, in some cases, were foregoing or, in, in fact, left some very prosperous, and when I buy prosperous, I mean financially, uh, phenomenal careers. But their heart was so dedicated to helping those that are suffering from addiction and mental health issues that they left whatever profession they were in to go into counseling. And as a result, we're foregoing uh, the opportunity to make a ton of money, but that's not what this business is all about. You know, these are people that are there for all the right reasons. They're there to help others, the, uh, the people that are suffering. And I was just really moved by some of the counselors that I worked with because the, these are these are great people. And they are underserved people. They are people that are not appreciated. They absolutely should be paid much more than what they are getting paid. But that's the way that it is. And it just shows you that in our society that we tend to uh, provide people that are really here to entertain us a lot of money. But yet the people that are here to serve and protect us, we pay them very little. And it's it goes beyond the counseling profession. That, and You can say that about teachers. You can say that about police officers, firefighters. Uh, our military, uh, all these people that dedicate their lives to serving us and we don't pay them. But that was, you know, what I saw, uh, some some great people. And counseling folks takes a lot out of you mentally, spiritually, physically. Uh, you know, if you've never been around, if you've never been in a job where your position is to deal with people that are at the bottom of their life. Now, imagine that. Every single person that comes through the door in a treatment center is likely at the bottom of their life, meaning imagine what it would take for you 
to get to the point where you say, you know what, I need to go into an inpatient treatment center for a month, uh, three months, six months, nine months, a year even, because that happens. Now, this this treatment center uh, was a 28-day facility, but imagine what it would take for you to get to the point where you say, you know what, this is what I need to do. You're, you're probably not going to be at a, at a high mark in, in your life, at least the way that you look at it. Now, I frankly, if you've been blessed with the opportunity to attend uh, inpatient treatment, if that's something that you need, then it's something that you need, and that is the beginning of a better life. The way that I look at it, the way I look at it is your life is certainly going to get better, and it's a good thing that you're in that treatment center. However, that's not how the patient looks at it when they're there. They think that this is it. You know, I'm a failure. I've uh, reach the bottom of my life. It doesn't get any worse than this. Uh, I'll never get any better. My family is leaving me. Because think about it. When you're going into a treatment center, there's usually a lot of chaos around you. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've lost your spouse, the children, uh, your home, you, you, you name it. Uh, maybe you're, you have pending legal charges. Maybe you've got disciplinary issues at work, or you've got other issues with your children. Uh, all kinds of things that are happening when someone comes in. And then we tell them, hey, we're going to help you get sober. So we're working on taking away your number one coping mechanism. You know, we're telling you that that's the thing that you can't do when you leave here. Um, And when you leave here, the world's not going to be this sunny, flowery place. You're still going to be facing all those issues that brought you into the treatment center. You're going to be facing them when you leave here. But you you can't do drugs uh, or alcohol. Uh, And that's what you've been relying on to get through these things. And ironically, that's also what caused much of the problem that brought you here in the first place. But you can imagine the turmoil that people are going through when they come into the treatment center. And, uh, you know, here we are working with you and we are trying to do our best to get you well and point you in the right direction and give you the tools that you need to get into recovery. So some of the things I wanted to talk about are in those experiences in the treatment center, Because if you are someone that is thinking about going to treatment, and I know that there are a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are at the point where they're thinking, you know what, maybe that's something I need to do. Now, how do I know that? Because I get phone calls from family members and from the patients themselves that say, you know, I listen to this podcast and I listen to what you're saying. And I'm thinking, you know what, I need to do something about my addiction and something to improve my life. And so I want to go work on getting well. And so this podcast is really... Uh, to give some thoughts and ideas to those that may be in that category and you know just give sort of a high level overview of what I saw when I was there and my my key takeaways so the first one from that is uh, the types and categories of people that came into treatment um you know I think there's with the stigma that's out there and the preconceived notions in in the world the, the there's this belief that it, it's homeless people, that it's people that are the dregs of society, criminals, bad people, if you will, that come to treatment. And the fact is, none of that is true. When you go to treatment, you see all kinds of people that come in. Um, every walk of life, every status of life is there. Very, very rich people. I met people that are enormously wealthy that came to treatment, all the way down to the people that are in fact homeless and everything in between. Um, there's pilots there. There are uh, Congress people, White House staffers, business people, um, homemakers. Uh, you name it, everybody. Name name a profession. And I probably saw someone from that profession in the time that I was there and also when I was a patient myself. So you can't 
just say that there's one type of person that goes to treatment. It's it's everyone. Addiction is an equal opportunity destroyer. It's probably the most equal opportunity thing that we face in this nation. So everyone comes into treatment. So the one thing that each one of these people had in common was that they all needed to get help and they all needed to stop drinking and drugging. And that's what we want to emphasize and we tried to emphasize when they came in that this is about your similarities and that is that you need to stop drinking and drugging and you need to get help. And we're really not here to talk about what your profession is, what your occupation is, what your political beliefs are, your religious beliefs are. None of that applies here. This is all about you getting well. And that is what each and every patient has in common with one another. And so what causes people to come? Now, we talked about some of it already. And what causes people to come to treatment is they don't have any alternative They have gotten to the point to where there's two options, get well or die. Get well or die. And before you die, you're going to lose everything, and then you're going to die. And that's what causes people to come. Now, unfortunately, for many people, that's not the end. That's not enough. That, that, That sheer fact is not enough to cause them to want to get well. But that's why people come. If you had a different alternative, if there's something else that you could have done, you would have already done it. And maybe you have tried it, but it wasn't successful in your life. And so then you thought, well, I'm going to go to treatment. Or more likely, somebody else told you that you needed to go to treatment. But that's why people come to treatment. Now, on the flip side of that, when people come to treatment... Why do they leave? And I don't mean graduate from the program, spend the 28 days there, and then leave. I'm not talking about that. I mean, why do people leave against medical advice? Why do they do that? Well, they leave because they think it's not working, or they think that they won't get well, or that they think that they can't change their life, or they feel that they're going to die if they can't take uh, another drink or another drug, or they think that uh, they just can't imagine their life progressing from where they are without drinks or drugs, even though it's the opposite that's true. That's But that's why people leave. They just cannot envision a sober life ahead of them. And they actually ironically think that that life, the sober life, is going to be worse than the life that they have when they came into treatment. And that's when we talk about addiction being uh, a disease of the mind and the body. That's what we're talking about. Your brain is hijacked. Your brain is hijacked into thinking that what you are doing is necessary for survival, that what you are doing is the good thing, that this is what you need to do in order to thrive and survive. And when the reality is that this is, in fact, what's killing you. So for those of you that still aren't convinced that addiction is a disease, that's proof positive right there that addiction is a disease. It's a disease of the mind and the body. In the body, it's the genetic uh, pre-uploading, the disposition, the fact that you process drugs and alcohol differently than other people, and of the mind, where your mind is then hijacked, saying that that thing which is a poison uh, is actually good for you and necessary for your survival. And so your brain keeps telling the rest of your body to keep taking the drug, and it hijacks you. And that's what you see in people. But what we try to do, and the reason why we put them into treatment, the reason why we take them out of their environment 
is to get them into position where we can just focus on the the one necessary message, and that is that by continuing to drink, drink or drug, that is what's killing you, and get you detoxed enough, and get you now regulated uh, medically, physically, rebalance the body, the brain, get it back to the point to where you can see that. Because when you're dealing with someone that is in the throes of their addiction, they cannot see what is obvious to you and everyone around them. They can't see that. And so they have convinced themselves that drinking and drugging is what they need to do to survive. And we have to get them isolated from the rest of society into an environment where we can get them clean, get them sober, get them, uh, educate them, give them the tools that they need to thrive once they leave because they cannot go back to drinking and drugging the way that they did. Um, and I'm one of those that advocates for not going back to drinking or drugging at all. And I may talk about that here a little bit more. Um, so what what causes people then to stay? Those The vast majority of people that came to treatment at least made it through the 28 days. So what, what causes them to stay? Well, there's a lot of uh, reasons behind that. And there's different, I guess a lot of that depends on the category of person that you were when you came in. And what I mean by category is there are a lot of people that are, that are not uh, there by choice. Okay. Now, and that's two categories as well. We have those that are there uh, because maybe the legal system put them there and they were told, um, you know, go to treatment or go to jail. So you're there against your will, but you're not necessarily there because you want to get well. You're there because you don't want to go to jail. Okay, now a lot of those people don't necessarily take to heart what we're talking about, and they are there just so they don't face other consequences. Some of them do get well. I, I've met many, many people in recovery that have talked about how uh, being forced to go to a treatment center was the beginning of their recovery because they would have never done it w- without that that uh, forced encouragement, if you will, but uh, uh, most of them don't because they don't have the right motivation. Now, there's other people that are sort of uh, forced to go, and I'll put that in quotation marks, and what I mean by that is um, some people that work for the government and airline pilots uh, and air crews, and and, uh, there's some others too, like people that work with trains and, you know, mass transit, things like that, is condition of their employment if they get into trouble with uh, alcohol or drugs, like they got a driving under the influence charge, or maybe they pop positive on a urinalysis at work, those types of things, then they are sent to treatment. Now, they don't have to stay. They don't have to stay, but the FAA and their airline will say, but you don't have to be a pilot either, (laughs) or you don't have to work around railroads or whatever it is that you do. And so they are semi-forced to go uh, as a condition of their employment, okay? And so those those people go. Now, ironically, uh, those folks have a very, very rigid... uh, process that they need to go through is the only way that I can put it. And, and it varies a little bit from the agencies and the airlines and um, the organization that you're with, but they have very strict follow-up, meaning they will go to AA meetings or NA meetings uh, once they leave treatment. Um, they are exposed to that, of course, while they are in treatment, but they will also be subjected to continuous testing more rigid than they, than they were already exposed to uh, while, while in employment. And um, they have to follow certain guidelines and procedures and testings for uh, about two years in some case. The, the airlines, all of them, uh, through the FAA, have to follow that testing for about two years. But you know what that means? It means that in the long term, when, when they did studies to look at it, the long-term recovery rate for these folks, meaning going beyond two years, was very high, like in the 90th percentile or higher, depending on uh, the group that you're looking at. 
which is the by far the highest success rate of anyone that we saw in the treatment center. So there's something to that, the rigidity, the uh, the the testing, the uh, really just having your your organization on top of you and really encouraging you and again almost forcing you with the understanding that you can leave the organization at any time. But if you want to continue to fly, here's certain things we will do. But for many of these people, they end up in much longer term recovery than they would have otherwise, and certainly much longer recovery on average than the rest of the patients that we saw. So there's something to that. And there's uh, other organizations, some other government organizations that have similar policies, not quite as rigid, but they also don't have quite the success rate either. Higher than the general population, but not quite as high as uh, the airline pilots. So that was just a very interesting phenomenon that I picked up there uh, or while I was there. Um, So why don't people... Make, make it long-term then. So I talked about the general population and the general population doesn't make it near as long as the government organizations and the airline pilots. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, there's not a whole lot of uh, follow-up once they leave treatment. And in some cases, no follow-up. Um, so there's something that needs to be done with you when you, if, if you fall into that category where you don't have an organization sort of following you afterwards, the only thing that I can suggest to you is to follow the plan that is given to you by your counselor. And uh, usually, not always, but usually the counselors are going to give you things like intensive outpatient or outpatient, sober living, um, uh, or uh, halfway houses, things like that. And I would, if that's recommended to you, there's there's a reason why that was recommended to you because there's certain guidelines and procedures that they use to determine what is best for you in your uh, aftercare treatment. And I would highly suggest taking that. Now, there's not going to be anybody forcing you to do that like with the others, but I would recommend taking that because we find that the people that leave treatment and get into an intensive recovery program of some sorts, they have an exponentially higher rate of success than those that just go and do it on their own. Doing it on your own and going back to your old ways uh, going back to the ways that got you into treatment in the first place is not that's not a plan for success. It just isn't. And I didn't see it happen with anybody that left the treatment center. So the more that this is planned, the more that you can put that together and the more that you can adhere to it, then the higher your chances are of long-term sobriety and long-term recovery. But as always, you have to first and foremost decide that that is in fact what you want. All right. And let me just address that for a minute. You have to uh, think when you come into treatment, ask yourself this question. Why am I here? Am I here because I want this person off of my back? I want my job off of my back. I want those people to go away. These people that are bothering me about my drinking and drugging. Do I want them to go away? We call that in the recovery world, the back problem. You want to fix your back problem. You've developed a back problem and you want the back problem to go away. Meaning all these people are on my back and I want that fixed. I want them gone. I don't necessarily want to stop drinking or drugging. I just don't want these people on my back. And only you can answer that. Only you know the answer to that question, but it's a vital question and largely will determine your success and where you go post-treatment. Am I just here to fix my back problem or do I, in fact, want to get well? Okay, so ask yourself that question and that will determine whether or not you make it long-term because I know in my own case, it wasn't until I decided that I wanted 
uh, recovery and I wanted to get well more than I didn't want to get well, I wasn't going to get well and, and it didn't work for a long time. And when I finally made that decision, then things uh, turned around. Um, so we talked about the counselors and again, just fantastic people. And if you're a counselor working in a treatment center, and I know that a lot of you are listening to this podcast, my hat's off to you. That's a tough job. But I will tell you also that you got to take care of yourself because there's nothing like being in a job where everyone is suffering. Every single person that you're dealing with is suffering. It takes its toll on you mentally, physically, and emotionally. So take care of yourself as well. And if you're in recovery, that you got, there's a tendency to not work your own recovery program because you're working so hard to get people into their recovery program. So it's easy to forget about yourself and your own program. And please don't do that. You have to stay healthy. And the burnout rate and the turnover rate is enormous. It really is. And I was working at a really nice treatment facility where that facility did what they could. Uh, it was probably much better than most facilities in in helping the counselors take care of themselves. But even then, there was still a high turnover rate. So if there was any facility that didn't go to the length that this one did to help the counselors, I can't imagine what their turn out, turn, uh, burnout rate is. And, um, you know, we need you out there. We need you on the front lines. We need you helping. We need you doing the work. But You've got to take care of yourself. So now, it was over a decade since I went to treatment. And by the time I worked there as an intern, and I will tell you that there's been a lot of changes and in, in trends as far as the counseling world is concerned. And I don't necessarily mean the place where I was working. I'm, I'm talking, again, bigger macro type of discussion here regarding the trends, although I did see some of these trends there myself. And I know early on when I started out in recovery, it was very singular. It was a very singular message. You've got to get well. You've got to stop, in my case, drinking. You've got to stop drinking. So everything was geared towards uh, getting you to the point to where you did not pick up a drink or a drug again. Everything was good. That was the laser light focus was on that. The trend that I have seen, and this is just my opinion, and I'm seeing it across the country, and I've seen seen it in the academic world. I'm seeing it in the counseling world. Uh, I'm just seeing it across society in general. That instead of staying with that that singular message on not drinking or drugging, period. Now we're starting to see. Well, just don't do that as much. And let's uh, find other things that we can do to um, lessen the effects of the drinking and the drugging that you're doing. And what I mean by that is, um, hey, you know, if you have anxiety, because you're going to have anxiety when you first stop drinking or drugging, that's that's just, that's very natural. That's part of the medical process, and it's just part of the fact that um, maybe there's issues in your life that you need to address, and there are non-drug uh, and alcohol ways to deal with anxiety and stress. But instead of giving you the tools and the methods, i.e. meditation, wellness programs, resiliency programs, uh, prayer, if that's something that's important to you, those types of issues, instead of going down that road, it's let's just find a less damaging way chemically to deal with anxiety, i.e. let's smoke marijuana, let's take you know CBD, let's do, let's do all these other things as opposed to just working on you and training you to work on life on life's terms, drug free. Now we've gotten to the point where um, there are these other alternatives. And in fact, you see nationwide, there's a push now to legalize marijuana everywhere. And for those of you that say that there are therapeutic, therapeutic uses to marijuana, 
Um, I will tell you that um, if you you had spent time in my shoes in a treatment center, you would see a lot of people there that are in treatment for marijuana and marijuana only. And marijuana was destroying their lives. This was not therapeutic. And interestingly enough, many of them in the counseling sessions would uh, tell you that they didn't really see what the issue was because after all, their doctor had prescribed marijuana to them and they had America uh, marijuana medical card. And it would be kind of the joke. They would, they would kind of giggle as they would say that. This has to be good because my doctor gave it to me and then talk about how they had the card and it was legal and it was, it was also the big joke and the, the treatment center. Um, am I saying that people that... Uh, are dying of stage four cancer that are in a lot of pain that uh, you know are at the last legs of their life uh, couldn't benefit that and that's not something that couldn't be given to them. I'm not saying that at all, but what I'm saying is um, most of us don't know those people, and um, we also, if we're honest with ourselves, that's not who we're talking about, and that's certainly not who's coming into the treatment center. So I think that the whole medical marijuana issue, those that are pushing for that, it's kind of a red herring argument because the people that make that debate aren't the people uh, uh, the, the people that need it, the medical marijuana, the, those aren't the people that we're talking about. Um, the vast majority of people, in fact, all of the people that I met in the treatment center did not fall into the category where this was something that was necessary medically for them. So um, that's the big trend. Uh, the other trend is that while you're in counseling sessions, there's a lot of social justice issues that come into um, counseling sessions now that I did not see when I came into, into treatment. Now, there's going to be many that will argue that it's social justice issues that cause people to drink or drug and uh, and those issues need to be dealt with. And if those are issues that bother you and those are issues that need to be addressed, I, I really think that they should be addressed in counseling outside of the inpatient treatment center. And that's something that should be done later once you've a- a- achieved some stability in your own personal recovery from drugs and alcohol and, and long-term. Because A, that's going to be individualized to you. Uh, whatever Because each one of us is going to have a different social issue that, that is like a hot button for us. And when you're in a group session, or certainly in an auditorium, um, but even in, into the group sessions, that's not going to be the case for um, you, um, or for everyone in the group, rather. And also, what is a hot-button issue for you, a social issue, uh, you're bothered by, let's say, a national policy going one direction. Well, th- the other person sitting in the, the counseling group might have a very different view and is bothered for the opposite reason from you. So you're actually kind of triggering issues if you think about it in groups. And I saw that happen quite a bit. And I don't know that that has any place in a small group in a treatment center when really the group needs to be talking about, like, you know, how did drugs and alcohol bring us to this point and how is that affecting us? And let's talk about how we can get better from the, uh, these things. Now, again, those issues later on need to be dealt with in therapy uh, or in some other ways. But I really think that bringing in all these social justice issues into a counseling session kind of waters down treatment in a lot of ways, because there's a lot of discussion about that as opposed to the discussion of what we can do to get well. And, uh, you know, people end up leaving treatment really not knowing the fundamentals and the basics of addiction, the progression of addiction and how to get well. So that's just my opinion. My observation and my opinion. And, um, you know, we talked about the success of the specialized groups. And the specialized groups, meaning the pilots, uh, police officers, government employees, those types of things. I can't emphasize enough that the real reason why they were successful is because it was very focused, very structured, very intensive, with a lot of supervision and oversight. 
And there were consequences, not for following it. And early on, let me just say this once again, early on people were doing, um, following recovery and following those plans out of necessity because they did not want to lose their job. They do it in the beginning because they have to. But eventually what we found, with very few exceptions, was that after a period of time, namely about two years, people were doing it because they wanted to and they saw the benefits and they saw clearly that their lives were getting better over time. And that was my own experience. That recovery does not happen overnight. It does not happen overnight. It takes time for that mental shift, that spiritual shift, that whole cognitive shift to occur. You know, you didn't you didn't start drinking and drugging. You didn't start drinking alcoholically overnight, and you're not going to get sober overnight. It takes time. And that whatever you can do in your life to give you the best chance of survival, the more things you can do to give yourself the, the best chance of survival, the better. And those long-term specialized programs have the, provide the best opportunity because it just keeps you focused and keeps you intense. And so, folks, those were just some of the some of the observations that I want to put it out to you after the year long internship. And again, to the folks that uh, that listen to this podcast, that work at the center that I was at, I want to thank each and every one of you. I learned uh, so many different things, and each one of you is special in your own way and taught me those those different things. It's reconnected me to my my recovery program. It's reconnected me to my spiritual development program. It's made me think about what I'm doing and what we can do to go forward. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. And uh, so those those are just my thoughts. I uh, would appreciate your comments. Appreciate your input. Please reach out to me. I know a lot of you do. And you know what? Just just keep moving forward, guys, one day at a time, as we say. And uh, we don't represent any group, and I don't represent anyone other than myself. And guys, as you know, that my only purpose in giving this information is uh, to share with you what I've done, because hopefully if... I've done it, and it's worked for me. Hopefully, it's going to help you as well. And if I said anything that doesn't apply to you or you don't agree with, then just discard it. But try to take any information that you can use for yourself so you can help others as well. Because maybe it's not something that applies to your life, but it might be something that can be useful to someone else in the future, and you want to take that opportunity to help them. Because that's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way, and we help to impart the knowledge that we've gained to others. And so with that, visit my Facebook page, which is Recovery is Possible, and our website, which is VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com. There's a lot of information on there that you can use uh, for yourself and for others. And let me know how I'm doing, and let me know if there's a topic that you're interested in hearing about, because I'd love to hear from you. And folks, uh, as you know, this episode is, again, sponsored by FHE Health uh, and FHE Health. Uh, is located in Florida, down in uh, Deerfield Beach, down in the um, almost in the Miami area, a very beautiful area down there on the water. And according to SAMHSA, the first responders are 30% more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD. And FHE has this specialized program called Chatterproof, which specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. So find out more at FHEHealth.com. Check out their website. A lot of good information on there, FHEHealth.com. And with that, folks, I'm happy to be here talking with you, serving you, and helping all of us get better one day at a time. You take care of yourselves, and we'll see you soon. Bye.